Happy Sunday morning, everyone. Uh, you're watching Book Club on Unsafe Space. Today is some kind of day. What is it? Sunday, March 6th, 2022. Uh, I'm Carter. And uh, we are, today's book club is The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And we're uh, a couple a couple announcements up front. One is you're not watching this on YouTube which you should already know, uh, but you might be watching it from unsafespace.com slash live, which is where you can always find live streams. Um, but we are streaming not on YouTube today because we want to actually have a discussion about this book. And we all know that Susan won't let us say bad things about uh, the sacred Anthony Fauci. Um, but we're also doing something else a little bit different today, uh, actually for all book clubs moving forward. We've kind of changed the format a little bit. We we decided that um, we wanted to shake things up and make book clubs more accessible to people who maybe haven't read the book and are interested in it. Um, and uh, and also we kind of changed the book the process by which we pick books. So let me just explain that quickly, and then I'm going to hand it over to someone else. So um, what what's going to be happening from this this book club forward is. We will have a an advocate, we'll call them, for a book. So someone uh, someone's going to say, I really want to read this book for book club. I think it's really important. And that person will agree to be the advocate for a particular book. Um, and they will start off book club by making their case, basically. This is what the book's about. This is why I think it's important. Um, and that will be a limited, uh, a limited time up front, you know, maybe half an hour or so. And... Um, and then we'll jump into kind of a regular discussion with book club members like we usually do. And, and that, you know, anyone who's read the book that wants to, to join, um, can join just like they always have. They can contact Beverly, uh, or, or whatever. So, so that's what we're going to do. That's the new format. And the, um, the, uh, the book today, as I said, is the real Anthony Fauci. By Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the advocate is Keith Bissett, who really thinks that we should read this book and loved it. So Keith, come on screen. I will go away and I'll hand off. This is Keith the Hack Guy. For those who haven't met Keith the Hack Guy, there he is. And uh, Keith, you can take over and tell everyone why this is the book. Okay. Um, well, at, you know, since the pandemic just ended uh, last week, it ended. Um, it's a good time to kind of review what's happened the last two years. Uh, this book came out in November of 2021. It's uh, extensively researched. There's, I, I added them up. Uh, there's something like 2,000 references. It's like hundreds in each chapter. Um, R.F. Kennedy Jr. spent a year uh, on this, but reading it, you know, this couldn't have been done in a year. He's had decades of exposing uh, the, the whole government health bureaucracy and and the pharmaceutical industries and take them to court um and that just comes out it's so obvious in the book um i heard about this when it first came out in an interview on a tom wood show with um first with the producer and then with him um the publisher i mean and then with robert kennedy um so i listened to the audible version in like december before you could even get a print copy it's excellent i also got a couple copies of the book handed out um, 
it's an eye opener, even for somebody like me that has been paying some attention. Um, I'm quite skeptical and I'm a critic of government. Uh, I had no idea how how big this cabal is. Um, and by the way, the uh, the title of the book, it's Real Anthony Fauci, but it's Bill Gates, Big Pharma and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. Um, you might think this about COVID, like COVID is chapter one. There's 12 chapters. Uh, he goes into AIDS days and all the way back, all kind of global pandemics, uh, Fauci's career from the beginning, uh, a lot about Bill Gates. Um, so I was going to start by reading a couple of uh, other people's short summaries of it. Um, it's a difficult book to get a summary of. It's so big, 450 pages. Um, if you, This is Christine Northrup. If you've ever wondered why so many good scientists and doctors have been silenced for discoveries that don't fit the mainstream big pharma narrative, look no further than Robert F. Kennedy's tour de force expose of Anthony Fauci. Uh, here's one from Robert Malone, um, virologist, immunologist. He was one of the people that got totally canceled uh, by bringing out the truth. He said, I thought I understood what was going on from the insider point of view, but what this book clearly documents are the deeper forces and systemic pervasive governmental corruption that have led us to this point. I'm just going to pick up a couple. Uh, Dr. McCola, everybody's probably heard of Joseph McCola. He's uh, same thing. He's an independent guy. He's not afraid to say the thing that's truth. If you have any interest in doing a deep dive into more than a hundred year history of what led up to the COVID-19 pandemic, the real Anthony Fauci is a must read. In addition to exposing Fauci, the book reveals the complex web of connections between Gates and Big Pharma and many of the most important players that are responsible for seeking to implement global tyranny and profit enormously from the propaganda behind the COVID injections, masks, and lockdowns. Um, and this one's interesting. I hadn't heard him before, but Mike Campy, he's a former FBI agent. He's a retired coordinator of the organized cram crime branch in New York. As I read Kennedy's book, I thought a discreet and thorough criminal investigation into Fauci should occur. It brought back memories of criminal bid rigging schemes organized by organized crime. Um, yeah, one of the analogies that you see with him is uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, okay, uh, it's full of quotes, I said. There's um, tons and tons of references. Um, little kind of an overview here. Uh, I was going to mention the uh, dedication. So here's another interesting thing. There's a long list of doctors here and he dedicates the books to like basically the heroic scientists and doctors who are on the front line and not afraid to go against the preferred narrative. Um, calls them brave men and women have succeeded at great costs in preserving their own integrity. Um, and they prioritize truth, welfare of patients, and public health above their own career ambitions. And it's a long list. You recognize a lot of the people in this. Um, the uh, the table of contents, like I said, it's it's. Um, I'm just going to flash that up. Uh, chapter one is on COVID. Uh, it's extensive. Uh, it goes into you know killing the therapeutics that that. Pretty much at this point, they've been proven it worked. Hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, exposing remdesivir, Fauci's like cure for COVID that doesn't work and is toxic. And the whole set, you know, whole thing on vaccines, like 
vaccines are bust. It's called, uh, it's just a section on how Fauci just said that the only possible solution here is vaccines, not um, treatments, not early detection, not early treatments. It's like you're supposed to stay at home, lock down, wait until you can't breathe anymore, and then go to the emergency room. Like, and ultimate solution is just wait for a vaccine. That's basically all the government ever did this whole time. Uh, chapter two is uh, farmer profits over public health. That was an eye-opening one. Uh, three, four, and five are on HIV and AIDS. I didn't know anywhere near. I hardly knew anything about this, it turns out. Um, it exposes this whole concept. Does HIV even cause AIDS? Like, that's never been proven. They never even tried to prove it or back that up. And then the, the AZT uh, drug that Fauci developed for AIDS basically made his career on that. And um, that killed who knows how many people killed a lot of people. Um, the HIV heretics, burning the HIV heretics, chapter six. That's on, on Fauci having the power to just basically destroy the career of anyone who even questions him. Um, and there's uh, Dr. Fauci, Mr. Hyde. It's on experiments on children. Uh, that's pretty scary. It's actually chilling to read. Uh, then there's a couple chapters. They're, they're interesting. You do have to wade through them. One's called White Mischief on African Atrocities, and the next one's The White Man's Burden. Um, a lot of those go into gates, um, and you have to kind of wade through RFK's uh, attributing everything to racism. Um, uh, yeah, I'm like counting this book. It's an amazing expose, but uh, it does. you do have to occasionally just grimace and get through RFK talking about, you know, he's a lifelong Democrat and he talks about the public good and how Republicans try to destroy public health and equity in the name of profits. Um, so there is a few things in that, but the facts are so clear um, that he has in here and he's got links to everything. One of the things that makes it interesting about that perspective, because you read these statements once in a while, he'll like go after Trump for a couple sentences, like, oh, this is Trump's fault. But you're reading this like total exposure of the government from the point of view of a guy who's like totally pro-government, pro-big health bureaucracies and regulation. And like that's actually his viewpoint. And it's it, it makes it better in a way, as long as you can deal with uh, a few sentences about how Republicans cause this problem. Um, uh, chapter 10, more harm than good. Uh, that just goes through mostly childhood vaccines, but also pharmaceuticals going back decades through Fauci's career and even earlier, um, but primarily during Fauci's time and, and the you know explosion in childhood autoimmune illnesses and diabetes and all sorts of things and brings up a lot of questions about are, are these ch mandatory child vaccines, are they actually helping or are they hurting? Um, and a uh, chapter 11, Hyping Phony Epidemics, Crying Wolf. Uh, it goes back through a whole series. Um, I forgot about some of them. Remember the anthrax scare and swine flu and all of them. And the last one is really eye-opening. It's called Germ Games. It's on about a dozen U.S. government and media and intelligence and Fauci and NAID and NIH simulations of war games on germs. Um, all right. I'm going to try to keep, I'm going to keep this to half an hour. So you might have to tell me to stop if I, because I got, I tried to do notes on this. Uh, it's really hard. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm an advocate of this book. If you actually want to understand what's happened the last two years, 
Um, this is amazing. I've read some other books that are really good too. Uh, this one is is uh, is chilling. Um, anyway, uh, I'm I'm just a couple notes I wrote. Uh, I I'm going to use the word COVID for SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 and the various versions for that. Um, just to keep it short, I just use COVID for everything. And as far as shots go, I just say. COVID shots. Uh, that's Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, the, the European ones, the Chinese ones. Um, I don't use the term vaccine form because they don't meet the definition of a vaccine um, that I've used my whole life uh, up until when the CDC changed the definition in August when they tried to, when they uh, wanted to give emergency approval to uh, the Pfizer one. Um, I just call them shots because they're just shots. They don't vaccinate you. They don't make you immune. They don't prevent transmission. So anyway, just a couple of phrases there. Um, all right. Fauci, uh, he's far more evil than, than, and, and corrupt than I even imagined. Um, is, uh, Carter's asking, can everyone hear me? Uh, I see on my mixer. I can, uh, looks like I'm doing good. So let me know if uh, you can't hear me. Um, so Fauci's been in government for 54 years now. Uh, 48 years of those, he's a bureaucrat. So yeah, they call him a doctor, but uh, I, I wouldn't call him a doctor. I kind of reserve the term doctor to to like a practicing medical doctor. You call him doctor, it's a title of respect. Uh, also a college professor, you call him doctor. It's a title of respect. So I, I never called Fauci a doctor, um, even though he did make it through medical school. I don't count that. So he completed his residency in 68 uh, and he joined NIH like right out of that. Um, he never saw a patient. He was never involved in that unless he happened by one during residency. Um, he started out in NIAID uh, in the LCI lab for, um, for uh, investigation. That's a laboratory clinical investigation. Uh, and four years later, he became the head of that. So he was a bureaucrat four years in. Um, in 84, he became director of NIAID. Um, and he's been there ever since, uh, 38 years. So in those 38 years, he's controlled almost a trillion dollars. Um, and most of that was doled out for patentable drug development. Um, it's amazing. You can imagine, I lived in DC for seven years. You know what a trillion dollars can get you, how many loyalties that could get you. Um, I was going to read a couple quotes. So this is to be fair to Fauci. Uh, I did look up what Fauci said about the book because I thought, okay, we should really hear what he says. Maybe he objected to it. So for the people that believe in the science and that they believe Fauci is the science, and as Fauci said, to criticize him is criticizing science itself. Um, maybe you can just listen to this and this will satisfy you and you can just, you won't need to hear the rest of this or read the book. Uh, so anyway, Fauci said about the book, if you look at my career, there are not a lot of people that would be attacking my career, but he seems to do that. So he's saying RFK is attacking his career. Um, actually, yeah, that's true. Uh, Fauci said, it's very unfortunate because I don't think he's inherently malicious. I think he's just a very disturbed individual. The thing that makes it even more painful about it is that ultimately that is hurting people. That will cause disease and lose lives for the things he's saying. Uh, that's Fauci's criteria, critic, critique of the book. Um, as you know, Fauci from TV, he never bothers to say anything about um, 
like a fact-based thing or talk about a study. He just he's basically just attacking the source. Um, all right, the first chapter it's on COVID. Uh, we've all been talking about that a lot. I'm not going to spend much time reviewing that. Um, he goes through all the fear and misinformation and lies that came out of Fauci and stories about how he cancels everyone not following a narrative and how he just brings his minions in on everyone. Um, goes into hydroxychloroquine, like why that was uh, an effective treatment when combined with other other things as long as it's early. Um, ivermectin works even better. You see that used all over the place. Um, I had COVID, my girlfriend had COVID, like uh, you know, it was two weeks. It was terrible. I'm not, I never took the shots by the way. Um, during the Delta days, I got over it. Uh, then we talked to like, uh, f people that we know in South Africa and, uh, people from Brazil. And they're like, well, why don't you just take ivermectin? It's like, well, no, you can't get it from the right aid. I was like, what people from South Africa, what do you mean? You just go to the drugstore and you get ivermectin. Um, they give it to, you know, kids when they go on camping trips. Like it's, it's an over-the-counter drug. Same as Brazil. You know, anybody from Brazil that's here visiting, like they think it's stupid to come here without some ivermectin. You might get COVID. Then you take ivermectin and a couple days later, you're fine. Um, lots of people told me that. Uh, I didn't even know about ivermectin when I had COVID. So anyway, he goes into that. Then he gets into remdesivir, uh, Fauci's signature, super expensive cure that's toxic and doesn't work um, that he pushed. Uh, early on, and then the whole vaccines are bust thing about how only vaccines can get out of it. Um, chapter two is really fascinating. It's on pharma profits over public health. Um, Fauci, he's he's handing out six billion a year um, as part of NIAID, and then another two billion that's DARPA funding. Uh, if you know who DARPA is, I work for the military industrial complex. Uh, DARPA funds all kinds of things that you probably don't know about. Um, Two billion of that goes to bioweapons research through Fauci. And where that goes is pretty shady. It's hard to check through that, but it's actually 1.7 billion last year. Um, in the book, uh, and some of this is what I've looked up in, but this is pretty much all from the book. Um, if anybody wants to question some of this, they can. I fact-checked a few things, but yeah, there's 2,000 references here. It would take a team of people in a year, and you probably couldn't fact-check this. Um, anyway, in Fauci's time in NIH, in the book, it says he controlled $857 billion. Um, that's a lot of money. I rounded it off to a trillion, and I couldn't figure out how much DARPA money he's had. Uh, and just as a fact check, I went on the government site because um, I thought that's incredible, a trillion dollars. Um, I came up, I, I looked at the last 20 years and added them up and I got something like 830 billion. So I think the number's right. Um, in 2000, he established a partnership with Bill Gates uh, in, in the whole 60 billion a year global vaccine business. Um, that's an interesting story. Uh, he com he's compared to to J. Edgar Hoover. Um, they they list the the amount of money and what he does with it. Basically, he he can dictate the subject and the content and the outcome of of health research like worldwide. Um, he pretty much controls according to the RFK book, and it's backed up pretty well. Uh, NIH, WHO, the CDC, politicians, uh, legacy media. It's obvious how much influence he has on them. Uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. As you know, we're not on YouTube for a reason because we don't want to lose the YouTube channel for 
on safe space. And there's no question talking about this book would do so. Um, his, his influence is, is uh, mind-blowing, really. Um, and if you go back far enough, like there was an example in the book in 1976, uh, this is when journalism was on main media. And one of the differences here, uh, this is before pharmaceutical companies were allowed to advertise on TV. If you don't think that makes a difference, watch the clips of um, sponsored by Pfizer of every news agency. Uh, something like two thirds of the, in a non-election year, somewhere around two thirds of the TV advertising comes from pharmaceutical companies. Now, um, in 1976, they weren't allowed to do that. So there was a 60 Minutes episode with Mike Wallace. Um, he exposed the corruption on the whole swine flu thing. Um, that was a completely fake pandemic. And then they developed the vaccine, which uh, ended up uh, lots of 20,000 people sued the government because the government had accepted liability for it. Um, it was an experimental vaccine released way too early. And the expose on 60 Minutes led to the CDC director being fired. Uh, those days are long gone. Um, in 1997, they ended the prohibition of pharmaceutical ads on TV. That's a big factor in what happened. Um, uh, here's one more interesting tidbits from chapter two in the profits one. Between 2010 and 2016, every single new drug approved by the FDA, it's 210 pharmaceuticals, they originated from research funded by NIH. So like the, the whole NIH, NAID system, and Fauci did this, has been converted to a part of big pharma. Uh, RFK says, I think he quoted somebody, there's no daylight between NIAID and the big pharmaceutical companies. Like, they're all one big team. And Fauci converted NIAID from something that was concerned with infectious disease to being entirely about patentable drugs, about developing patentable drugs. Um, so the book goes into the transformation of, of NAIID, um, how they were, you know, by, you know, by 1960, 70, the infectious disease like dropped to maybe 5% of what it was a century ago. Uh, something like a third or half the people in America died from infectious diseases at the turn of the century, like 1900. Um, that was reduced by 95% because of sanitation um, and nutrition. Like that's really what happened. Uh, there's a great chart in the book and it shows polio, flu, all kinds of different, you know, six different diseases, a hundred year history. And they're just like from like way up here to almost zero. And then they all have a little line like where it's, you can't even see them anymore because of the scale. That's when the vaccine was introduced. Like the whole vaccine paradigm, that's all bullshit. Uh, vaccines didn't really fix almost all this stuff. Um, I didn't know that. I, uh, I got shot by a bunch of them when I was a kid. Um, I'm still alive. I didn't have any injury from them. But anyway, Fauci was a big part of taking cancer money and converting it um, into NIAID. Uh, then there's a whole three chapters on AIDS. That story is really eye-opening. I think we should talk about that. I'll let somebody else bring that up. Um, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't realize they never proved HIV caused AIDS. I didn't realize the Fauci drug that he tested and he approved and he got pushed through killed hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Um, I didn't realize that the AZT was his drug. AZT toxicity is the same as, looks the same as age. You can't tell the difference. 
Um, and then there's chapters on how they burned the heretics, anyone who questioned it. Uh, the rest of the chapters, they go through experiments on children, uh, pretty horrifying. Um, what they do in, in Africa and India and other third world countries with uh, both drug marketing, they sell drugs there that aren't allowed to be used in the U.S. Uh, then there's two chapters, which have some interesting stuff to them, but you have to remember who wrote this. Uh, it's called The White Man's Burden. Um, the next one's called White Mischief. Uh, you have to kind of wade through the, the he, he blames stuff on racism. So they do experiment in Africa, and there are some reasons they do that. I don't think it's racism, as RFK claims. But he exposes what they're doing. Uh, you can read that and just ignore his claims that it's racism, and it's still eye-opening. Um, More Harm Than Good is Chapter 10. Uh, this goes into a lot of primarily childhood vaccines. Um and the explosion in autoimmune diseases, uh, including like diabetes, um, autism. And th this stuff all started when childhood vaccines were introduced and started to be mandating. Um, uh, they talk about some other deaths, uh, you know, some other drugs. Gardasil is a van. It's one of Merck's biggest sellers, a billion a year. Uh, it's used for young girls to prevent cervical cancer, just as an example. Um, you know, in Western countries they do regular pap smears and early detection makes that not lethal uh then there's a chapter crying wolf uh basically lists all kinds of you know swine flu bird flu zika virus denage virus like how those were all made into pandemics scare tactics to get money and then 12 the last chapter i had no idea this was going on it's called germ games it's all about like a dozen or more u.s government simulated war games um basically the war on germs um he goes into one uh one of them i'll just mention crimson contagion and i gotta i gotta warn i'm almost done here um i'm gonna stop at 30 minutes but it's 450 pages and i'm gushing a little bit i know and ranting uh anyway i'll close with this Simul the crimson simulation i was in august of 2019 um it's a war game scenario about uh, a Chinese virus that um, gets transmitted around the world from uh, public air travel. Uh, it starts in Chicago in the U.S. And before they even figure out what's going on, it's spread all over. It's killing Americans. Um, it was a four-day scenario um, with like dozens and dozens of agencies. News participated, uh, the CIA, Fauci, the CDC, Health and Human Services, Trump's disaster response leader. Um, and all of these simulations, like the dozen or so going back since the end of the Cold War, they all end in one thing, all of them, and in mandatory vaccines and increase in police power of the state. Like, that's how they all end. None of them get into natural immunity or uh, repurposing currently available drugs, uh, early detection, vitamins, health. None of them do that. They, they're all about it's an emergency. People are dying. They cover masking, lockdowns, like this particular simulation. August of 2019, these guys were doing this, a um, couple months before it hit. And they also cover ha the uh, how they muzzled the um, the whole possibility. It came from a lab, like Fauci's muzzle on that. Uh, then the last thing, there's an there's a, uh, afterward, he talks about Big Pharma's $10 billion annual budget for TV advertising. Um, and that buys a lot of commercials and a lot of obedience from everyone. 
uh, everyone involved. Uh, anyway, I'm going to stop there. It's an excellent book. Um, like I said, you know, the, the only critic I might say is like, yeah, he says, I'm a lifelong Democrat. Uh, he talks about his father and his uncle and Democrats, and he talks about Republicans a little bit. But that part is really minimal. Um, it, it was very easy for me to just overlook that and keep going because he presents so much facts. Anyway, highly recommended book. What do you all think? I I really enjoyed this uh, quite a bit. Um, I, it would it made me mad a lot of times, not because what he was saying was like I was mad at him. I was I was I was mad because of the things that had been happening. That um, for example, one of the biggest examples to me is when he did when they when they did their their ivermectin study. And they gave them knowingly lethal toxic doses of ivermectin as a test. And I was like, ivermectin is not new. We know what, what, at what levels it's toxic because almost every drug has a toxic level. Almost everything has a toxic level. And, but we already know when ivermectin is toxic. So giving it to people at known toxic levels is murder. Like I'm, I'm not even gonna mince words on that because you're literally poisoning people to to tell people that it's not safe. When we already knew, we already knew. So to me, that was one of the things that made me so angry, like so incredibly angry that you would you would kill people in order to um, basically <laughs> uh, kill a cheap drug, you know. As, because you you want to make your money off of your vaccines and your remdesivir, which is toxic as well, and so I that stuff like that was really eye opening. Like the AIDS chapters, while interesting, uh, and some of the stuff I didn't know, a lot of it I actually did know. Um, I I do mean iver I do mean ivermectin actually, but um, uh, that's in the ivermectin chapter. But uh, the the AIDS stuff, I knew a lot of that. I knew AZT was toxic. I knew it was it was killing people um, because when I I did a review of Dallas Buyers Club for my channel and I and I researched everything that they brought up, so I saw a lot of the stuff about um, uh, what AZT was, why we <laughs> why we were prescribing it and everything. And um, so though that those chapters were not that surprising, except for the congressional hearing where they talked to Fauci and they uh, and they asked him, like, we gave you this much money. How have you not come up with anything yet? And he has like no real answer. And they asked him, would you uh, take this therapeutic, this cheap therapeutic? you know, if you had AIDS and he's like, yeah, I would. In fact, I would take it as a preventative measure as well. And I, and, and I was like, how was he not fired then? That should have been a fireable offense back then. And then you wouldn't be in the situation we are now. And that's just so like frustrating to me that he should have already been fired like long ago. Yeah, and it was somebody asked in chat. Yeah, that was ivermectin. I think it was done in Brazil. Um, they also did it really late. They waited until people were like 
you know, you know, in the hospital, um, and they gave them known toxic doses. I, ivermectin is it's like considered safer than aspirin. It's like been around for sixty years. Like I said, my girlfriend remembers going camping when she's like twelve, and in in South Africa, and they gave them ivermectin, like as a as a preventative for malaria. Um, it, it's and it's probably. Nobody knows for sure, but, uh, you know, Africa, the whole continent, um, particularly Central Africa, their vaccination rates are like a couple percent. And the U.S. had like way more deaths than than African countries. And one of the possible reasons is that a lot of people take ivermectin once a week. Uh, they live in malaria prone areas and they take a low dose of ivermectin as a preventative and they do it for their entire lives. So th the studies done in in Africa on vaccines, like, well, wait, you're, you're trying a vaccine on somebody who takes ivermectin every week, which does actually work for COVID. <laughs> that was where some of the studies in the Brazil study that Alex brought up. Um, they Fauci used that on all over the place on TV, Fauci and the CDC and WHO. They use that to say that ivermectin doesn't work. Otherwise, if they had admitted that it did work, they could not have gotten emergency youth authorization for the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson shots. So that had to be squashed at all costs. And it was successful. American people went along. Anyway, anybody else want to say something? Tracy? Yeah, I felt the same as Alex. Mm -hmm. I was mad, um, angry, just hearing the, uh, I don't know, everything from the beginning. I was most interested in the COVID you know, chapter <laughs> and that's how it starts off. And, um, I actually did get the vaccine or we'll call it the shot. Um, I knew that it wasn't going to prevent me from getting, uh, you know, getting, uh, getting COVID, but I was hoping it would help if I did get it, you know, prevent me from getting too sick because I was, I have a couple, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the, the factors that make it more, you know, dangerous. And my wife has morbidities. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I have high blood pressure and slightly, slightly overweight, stuff like that. But my wife has um, asthma, and, you know, so for, we weighed the options and decided to do it. Um, but the more they were pushing it, the more I felt uncomfortable about it. Um, and then to hear some of the backstory of how it was, what's still being pushed. And I knew something wasn't right um exactly but i still thought it might be worth uh the risk um, at my age you know almost 50. um if i was a teenager or a kid like there's no way i would even consider it until there was more information so that whole fact about them pushing it on children is the worst and uh, the book made a good point about that too that it just i think he said it was criminal or um malpractice to do that and that they're still trying to push it on kids um, what are they trying to make it so five and up or something like uh, why I don't understand um, for an age group that doesn't even have uh, a risk like the the, the uh, vaccine has more of a risk to them than the actual disease so I don't understand I guess it just comes down to money and I don't want to believe that like I want to believe that our health system actually cares about health but th this this book was a real eye opener and kind of sad in that regard. Um, I still don't want to believe it. I want to believe there's, and, and I, obviously there's some people that that feel that health is health, you know, um, but the people like Fauci that are in charge, 
um, and have control of the money, they get to decide, you know, what, what gets done. So I don't know how to fix it really, other than books like this that expose it and hopefully get more traction and people actually wake up to it. That's the only thing I can see. One solution would be to shut down the NIH entirely. Like, I think you might have to start with that. Um, if you don't do that, you probably can't solve this problem. Well, you just there's you shut too down many their power. Yeah, there's too many PIs in it, like the the pharmaceutical representatives that work in NIH and and below. Like, there's too many of them, and that too many of them are making money this way. And uh, I imagine that some people who are not PIs who are lower and are wanting to work them their way up probably are seeing that as the next logical step in their careers is to get a PI position so that they can make more money. And so I don't, I, I agree with you, Keith, I think it needs to be shut down because there's no, once you create that kind of culture within an organization like that, you're not going to get rid of it. Like it's almost impossible to root out a culture like that in an organization. Sometimes it just has to be shut down. He spent 38 years creating this and a trillion dollars doing it. Um, you can't shut, you can't stop that. You can't get in there and fix it. Like you're not going to like get a new director and fix that. Um, there's too much involved. And in the, in the, also in the pharma profits chapter, he goes into how, um, all the, you know, Fauci has arranged NIAID to, uh, to, to help all the people that are under him and him. So it's perfectly normal for the people that work for him under him to get like a hundred, they set up to 150 K a year in like royalties from drugs that they developed using taxpayer money, uh, going to conferences and giving talks. Um, so he's, he's arranged this. I've, I forgot the number, but he, the numbers are in there. Like it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of people last year that got large amounts of money as royalties from patents that, that, that NIH holds some of it. And then a university holds the other part. It's all kind of mystery. Um, that shouldn't be legal. I think one I think of the, so. can you hear me okay? Yeah. I think one of the biggest, I, I don't think I've ever highlighted a book so much. I went through and just kept highlighting so many things. And one of the biggest takeaways for me was that I um, highlighted at least 38 instances of actual criminal activity and things where laws were broken, laws that were um obvious. I mean, I, and even things that were investigated. Um, and the fact that this has been going on for so long, and that so many instances were brought forth by people with scientific knowledge, um, and then just kind of brushed away. Um, it, it proved to me that this is so widespread, getting rid of one of these alphabet soup agencies, you know, there's so many of them. It's obviously so prolific through all these agencies. So that was one of my biggest takeaways. Um, why is this just keep happening? How, how can it be that crimes are committed and um, nothing is done about it? There, there hasn't even been a single 
investigation that I know of or, or legal action other than, you know, some people have been su- suing, but there's no criminal legal action that I know of. It's mind blowing. Well, like, for example, one of the biggest things is was the foster care children, uh, like forcing them onto uh, stomach tubes to make sure that they're taking the drugs like that's like the state is in charge of those children and their well-being, but they're abusing them by using them for these studies and killing them. Some of them are dying and some of them are facing extreme adverse effects. And the state has told it like I I like at this point, I'm sort of like they don't they could go back to their their parents. I don't care what their parents are doing. It has to be better than a stomach tube forcing them on drugs. It has to be better than that. That's how bad it is. And that's so criminal and it in unethical. It's insane. That 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 one story was really hard to read because it's like, wow, these poor children. Yeah, you talk about foster care and the I think the Wellboro. I, I don't remember the name of it, but on Staten Island, it was an institution where the, where the children were incarcerated. Um, and the, one, the reporter that looked into that found where they were putting the bodies of kids that were killed in the experiment. And it took her all day to write down the names. They had the names on a sign there and an AstroTurf cover. This is the report, an AstroTurf cover with um, little pine wood boxes all piled on top of each other in a huge hole mass grave and they told her that there's multiple bodies in each box however many would fit thousand like like from an institution of children but yeah they were using them for drug for vaccination experiments there was like, a oh, um, documentary did you follow the link for that on it was incarnation children's home I didn't find the link, but what was it? Yeah, tell us. It was a, it was a just a short film, a short documentary film on that incarnation, and they interviewed parents, some of the foster parents that had taken in children and tried to remove them from the situation. Um, they interviewed. It was done by the reporter that wrote that, and they oh. showed the video of the gravesite. And um, again, the fact that this was all known, that this happened and nothing really ever happened. Um, you know, they just continue to, I guess, you know, they, they put it as the collateral damage that all of this and the advancement of science to, for the greater good, um, killing and killing children. I mean, there were so many instances of, especially in Africa, you know, that, they said Africa's bearing the burden of Western's development of medication. And um, that came up, that theory came up so many times. The fact that like the DTP vaccine that was found to um, have thimerosal and they couldn't use it anymore. They banned it in the EU long before they even banned it here, but they took the stockpiles of medication and gave them to other countries, Brazil and Thailand and Africa. On the and, African- and then they use the, uh, I was going to make one more point on that. Then they use the DPT usage in those countries. The WHO uses that as the metric for how to handle countries, hand countries uh, money. It's a compliance measurement. So they say, how many DPT vaccines are you giving? So yeah, third world countries, you think, you know, Cameroon and Somalia, the, the people running those places, South Africa, people running those places, like, sure. Yeah, we need some WHO money. We'll spread this around. Mm-hmm. And the DPT is still sold there. 
but no, you can't, you know, he, and he says, well, it's too dangerous to use on white children. I think that's the way he puts it, <laughs> but it's, it's more the corruption in the governments, I think. Mm -hmm. well, and then nuts. I'd say that the one of the problems with any kind of studies that like they bring this up, any studies done in Africa, they say uh, deaths are adverse events. And uh, at what we would consider adverse events here are not even worth noting. Like they no. scale back the um, how dangerous it is because, well, Africa's dangerous and, it, and people die all the time, which is a, a it's like, well, Africa's also a really big continent. And some of it is actually incredibly like westernized, you know, and healthy. Some places are not as dangerous as like a, Mad Max film. So like acting as though, uh, but even if they were acting as though deaths are not deaths, that's insane. And that's also, uh, that's, that's the mischief is, you know, essentially scaling back those adverse events and deaths so that you can make it look better. So then you can bring it over to countries that have like higher uh, standards, supposedly at this point. Um, I mean, that that was really terrifying. You're like, so you're just murdering people and you're not even counting it? They use different criteria for what what is bad. Right? So, yeah, you couldn't get away with it here. Uh, and it is regulated some. So experiments that they can't get away with, they'll do in Africa or rural India, Central America. Um, it said that phase three trials for new drugs um, is about 90% of the cost of the drugs. And the per person cost of doing the trial is, is high. And you basically can't, can't do it in the United States. Can't do it in any Western country. So they don't do it in Europe. Don't do it in the United States. But you can do it in Africa. You can do it in Central America. You can do it in rural India. So that's where they do it. And the second factor, as you brought up, their, their laws are, they don't really have much following. You know, if a couple kids die, it's like, no, they died. The, the Like in the AIDS, when they talk about the AIDS, something like 100 different drugs over 40 years. Like the federal government has spent half a trillion dollars or so on Fauci developing a vaccine for AIDS that he's been saying for 40 years we'll have out in a year or two. Um, and they keep going and they've tried a hundred of them and none of them worked at all. And most of them were dangerous and some of them cause AIDS symptoms. They just cause the thing and they just say, well, they're HIV positive. The kid dies. So he died of AIDS. That's what the death certificate says. He actually died of the experimental vaccine. Yeah. Well, and then also I didn't know all that was happening. What, he's, what he brings up about the AIDS epidemic, though, in Africa is that the quickest way to uh, undo an AIDS diagnosis in Africa is to go to, like, Canada or another country, you know, outside of Africa. And they're like, oh, no, you actually have this because they're just assuming you have AIDS in Africa if you have some of the if you have some specific symptoms and then they treat you for AIDS if you get treatment, whether or not they've ever proved proven that you have AIDS, uh, that's, that's really bad medicine, um, that you could, that changing countries changes your diagnosis. That's not, that's not scientific at all. 
it's funny. It it falls into the if you don't laugh, you'll cry reading this book. So yeah, I don't know if it's still true, but they said, yeah, for a long time, like you could cure yourself of AIDS by moving to Canada. Like that cures you because the list of diseases that they classify as AIDS. um, First off, every disease has another name. If you're not HIV positive, they just say you have this autoimmune disease or you have, uh, you know, all kinds of tuberculosis is, you know, there's, there's a long list. And like I, I read the list, half of them I heard of, um, anyway, AIDS isn't actually even a thing. It's a list of other illnesses. Um, and they get into the whole lifestyle factor and Canada has a different list. So if you're in the U S they might give you AZT cause they say you have AIDS. If you move to Canada, you don't have AIDS, you have tuberculosis and they know how to treat that. They, they brought up a doctor. I forget where he was, but he never bought into the HIV causes AIDS thing. He didn't even bother to check cause a lot of the doctors say HIV is every lots of people HIV. It's it's a benign thing that's been around for millennia. Um, it doesn't cause AIDS, and it doesn't matter if you have it. Your body takes care of it like a million other viruses. Um, and if you come in with two of the things that they call AIDS, like tuberculosis and some other autoimmune disease, then he just treats it. And so this one doctor, he said he's had like thousand patients that came in saying they have AIDS and he treated them and none of them died, but he never gave them AZT. (laughs) Well, yeah, because they say like they were talking about what HIV is. HIV is supposedly a retrograde virus that uh, causes AIDS and with no other uh, cofactors at all. And then they're like, wait a minute, uh, since when have retrograde viruses ever done anything that dangerous? Like a lot of the scientists were saying, they're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Like the guy who discovered it, who stole that discovery from another scientist, according to this book, uh, uh, just announced it to the press. I found what causes AIDS. He didn't actually have a study yet. And then when he, when people were, other scientists were like, oh, can we, can we have a sample of the virus so that we can test it? He's like, yeah, sure. Hey, lab assistants, uh, damage those samples before you send them out. And so then it's like, well, no one can prove whether or not he's right at that point, which makes it really suspect over whether or not HIV is actually the freaking cause of AIDS. One of the other interesting things I found was that, um, you know, once they separated the HIV, which is like you said, it's a part of a retrovirus that's present. Um, the AIDS is immune deficiency and immunodeficiency or a depressed immune system is a side effect of a lot of vaccinations, including their finding COVID vaccination. And so when they said that there was an AIDS or a presence of this immune deficiency in Africa, it parallels a lot of the increase of vaccinations of children and adults of these Western vaccines that were in Africa. And so there's some suspicion that we've actually caused um, the AIDS epidemic through the previous vaccinations. And of course, now they come in and want money to create another vaccine to combat the immunodeficiencies that they caused. And um, that's that to me seems like the same, a page out of the same playbook of what's happening with COVID, that they're 
these vaccines they're finding are causing a lot of immune deficiencies. And now they're saying that because people have a suppressed immunity, they're going to require an annual COVID vaccine. So, because their immune system was destroyed by the last shot that they right. gave. And so we've, they've taken yeah. a disease that wasn't really a problem or a, a, a huge problem for the um, anyone under 80, basically, um, and created a demand for their product by causing everyone to have immunodeficiency or a lot of people to have it. And I, there's so many parallels through the eight, you know, all of the different vaccine programs. Um, it's like they just had a playbook for doing this and they've gotten away with it so many times. Why not do it again? It's like the AIDS was practice for this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you go back through the other ones, swine flu and Zitka virus and cowpox disease. And it's actually all the same story. The same story is like yeah. over and over and over again for yeah. 40 years. Well, yeah. And one thing you bring up the Zika virus, which they said was more dangerous to pregnant women, which and then at the same time when they were testing people for AIDS, and they would like for HIV, they would test pregnant women and pregnant women, uh, your body and produces a lot of re really weird stuff that shows up in your blood when you're pregnant. And so they were testing positive on HIV, whether or not they actually had HIV, because there's a lot going on in their blood. And he goes over that. And then like the idea that, oh, now you have to go on all these uh, medications, AZT, which will probably damage you and your baby. And, uh, and then, but then I think they, there was a lot of promotion of fear among pregnant women. Like every time one of these things came up because they did it with the Zika virus too. They were like, watch out women who are pregnant. It's more dangerous to you and your baby. Like they keep doing that. And, and part of me goes, well, is it because when women are pregnant, they're more prone to like fear, like, you know, they're more susceptible to it. And so that makes them like a, a, a vulnerable demographic for them to go after. Cause it, it feels like that to me anyway, to, to promote that kind of fear in them is it, it feels like a, a, an unsavory motivation is going on. He gets into the, there, there's a chapter on alternate causes and he doesn't say this is it. He just says these are worth looking into. Uh, the one about lifestyle was very interesting, like how th this theory of how this whole AIDS thing, um, talk about the lifestyle of the uh, initial people who were diagnosed with this. Uh, it's mostly homosexual men living, burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, heavy recreational drug use, talks about poppers and the connection between poppers and immune system disease um, on, on like, you know, often on antibiotics for sexually transmitted diseases. So their bodies are just like loaded with all kinds of different antibiotics over and over and over and over. Um, and they stay up all night and they take these poppers, which they say leads to symptoms that that destroy your immune system. And then they give you AZT, which does the same thing. Uh, that's something worth looking into. If you got six billion a year for public health, might want to ask that question. Um, but no, 
they don't study any of that. They said fa like Fauci doesn't fund any studies related to nutrition, exercise, vitamins, uh, repurposed drugs as a medication. It's all patentable pharmaceuticals. And once something's off patent, don't want nothing to do with it. They do the opposite. They suppress it. The thing is about the the poppers thing to important to bring up is that it it was being sold commercially to gay bars is what it, he he says and was owned by Wells Borough who also owned the patent for AZT. Mm -hmm. So they had this cycle going. Maybe it was serendipity for them, but it's kind of like disturbing to know that possibly their product was the thing causing this problem and then they were selling a product to solve it that really wasn't actually solving it in the first place uh it's very disturbing to think about that um and yeah the aids epidemic among homosexual men went down in the same time that the use of poppers went down and that's kind of interesting poppers don't really aren't really a thing that is being used anymore but at the same time, AIDS is not spreading as quite as much as it was before. So that's kind of a, um, you know, a, is it a coincidence or not? <laughs> it's worth checking. Yeah, we don't really hear much about AIDS anymore. They didn't do anything about it. They never found a cure for it, never found a vaccine for it. Um, but it seems to be no longer a thing. And certainly since COVID, I mean, if AIDS was a thing, they said that uh, a lot of the researchers that were making a ton of money off uh, HIV vaccines and AIDS vaccines just switched over to COVID two years ago. Um, and now we have a new war. So we, we got the, since, since the pandemic ended last week, I, I think we should nominate uh, Vladimir Putin for the Nobel prize in medicine. <laughs> he ended the pandemic completely ended the COVID pandemic. Like he should get a Nobel prize for that. Go ahead. <laughs> Like I said, if you don't laugh about some of this, you start crying reading this book. And I, I've been through it twice and, and read parts of it. Listen, I mostly listen to it, but um, and I have the book too, and also the Kindle version. So I, I don't know how many times total I've been through it. Um, I wouldn't. I think I'll be looking at it again. Like I said, yeah, you wear like Tracy said, you wear out a highlighter if you start highlighting stuff. Mm -hmm. I started highlighting stuff to talk about. And I was like, right up until it was time to connect. I'm like, can't possibly talk about all this. It's too much. It's huge. It is huge. Yeah, I listened to it also. Um, I don't know about you, Keith, but I put it on like one and a half speed because he was talking pretty slow and it's just so much information. But then I would have to go back and rewind because I'm like, wait, yeah. what, what, what was that? <laughs> it was so much information. That's good. Now I tried one and a quarter for a while and I, I, I had <laughs> trouble even just like out walking the dog. Like that was too much other mental activity to follow it at one and a quarter. Um, it's amazing amount of stuff. I and you just want to write it. stuff down. Yeah. Go ahead. I listen to it too. And I usually listen to audiobooks while I play video games. And there were, there was times where I like died in the video game. Cause I was so like, what the fuck did he just say? It was the most distracted I've ever been by a book. Like, honestly, because it's a lot of information and it's a um, lot of like, but, and it's all real and it's all terrifying. Uh, it was, it was a lot to take in. Um, and I want, I was all like, I want to just 
send copies of this book to a lot of people I know because I think they trust medical science in the U.S. a little too much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a religion almost. That's part of what he's exposing here is how people treat experts, like quote unquote experts, um, like like the you know infallibility of the Pope, basically. You know, Fauci saying, I am science. It's a religion. It, that's, it's much closer to a religion than, than anything else. Just blind belief in authority. As Einstein said, blind, blind belief in authority is the greatest enemy of the truth. Well, and you can pay an expert to say anything you want <laughs> mm -hmm. if you have the sure. money for it. So, like, and that's all this is, is that, you know, they, pharmaceutical companies have paid them enough money to say that these patented products are the best answer. Now, I kind of already was suspicious of pharmaceutical companies, like, years ago. I had seizures, and they, the, my doctor wanted to put me on Keppra, and I, and I researched it, because I don't like taking medication that I don't know anything about, and I was, like, 20 at the time and um maybe maybe younger and uh i researched it and it all this stuff said tepra is the only anti-epileptic that, that does not cause more seizures and there was nothing to back up that claim and i was like this sounds like bullshit and <laughs> and and i never found anything to back it up besides the studies that were done by the pharmaceutical companies themselves and i was like I just don't believe that's possible. Like that, like logically, it doesn't make sense to me. And I was having seizures on it. So I, I got off of it and I haven't had a seizure since. So like, this is why part of the, like I was ready to be a cynic, you know? I wasn't ready to be this much of a cynic, but I was primed for it. You're a realist, you're not a cynic. It looks like a cynic to people who don't want to believe. <laughs> Yeah, I think I had mentioned any of the other. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. That I didn't want to believe what I was hearing from the book. Um, and so you hear one anecdote or one fact, and it's okay, that's one thing. Well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. And then they just keep piling on. It's like, okay, well, there's another, and there's another. And uh, it, there was just, as we've mentioned, there's just so much backing what he's talking about that it's, um, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. And and he's got so much backup, like Tracy brought up the one video. I followed a couple links, but there's 2,000 links, 2010, if I added them up right. Um, you know, hundreds in each chapter. Um, and I followed a couple, but it, you, you couldn't possibly follow 2,000. The couple I checked, it seemed right. <laughs> I I would say the other one of the other big takeaways I got from the book was the fact that um, when all of this transitioned from being about science and research um, and more of a scientific background players and then became the whole um, government and it went into changed to a military application with bioweapons research and all of that, that I think it totally changed the whole structure of what, how the players were involved, how pharmaceutical companies were intertwined um, more monetarily with um, 
all of the, with government agencies, pharmaceutical agencies, and um, of course all the, you know, then you brought in Gates and everything, but that whole Gates-Fauci thing, and then it becoming all about um, researching bioweapons, like the, you know, with anthrax and how that coincidentally just happened while they were researching a, how they would respond to some type of a pandemic. So I think that, that was another big transition in how all of this funding and um, coercion um, and sweeping things that happened under the rug, how that all transitioned. And that's what's happening today. And now you have a few key players, big money players that have kind of taken over all of it with all of the things that Gates is doing. I, I didn't know any of that backstory about Gates. You, you hear about him, you know, vilified in the press occasionally, but um, it's all true. It's actually worse than anything yeah. that I that I knew about. Um, yeah. You talk about Gates' involvement in, in the different pharmaceutical companies. They, you know, quote Gates like, well, I talk to the heads of the pharmaceutical companies every week and I make sure they're on track. Yeah. Like, what? Philanthrocapitalism. <laughs> I like that word. Yeah. And and it turns out Fauci, like, yeah, so he's, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, how much money they dump into vaccines, you know, all over the world. Like, I, yeah. I did know about that. Fauci's budget is twice that. <laughs> like, he's. Yeah, that and is, they're on the same team. And, and Fauci controls the uh, Wells Welcome, the uh, one in, in, the, uh, in England that's uh, pretty similar. Uh, Fauci pretty much has control of that. So it said that between Fauci and the welcome, which he controls, and Bill and Melinda Gates, that's like 90% of the world's drug development. Like, that's all one team. They're all on the same side. Mm -hmm. And they have everybody just lined up. That, with the, they're minions that just, you lose your career if you go against it. Well, that's not good for medical advancement either. Like we're not actually advancing if 90% is in the hands of like a small group of people because they like, that means other IDs are being quashed. That means that uh, some people who, you know, are like willing to question things, but have good ideas are not going to be advancing in their careers or getting grant money. This it's actually incredibly bad for medical advancement. And uh, because a lot of people think that, oh, if every if uh, a lot of if everything's in the hands of one person or one or like a small group of people, then everyone's on the same page and they're moving forward. That's actually not like they think that that means things are getting done. But that, that's actually not true because human beings are not that logical. Usually, usually, you know, they don't go, well, what is the best for this situation? They're really more like, what is the best for me? They don't realize that's what they're actually looking for half the time, but it's true. And I'd say that's true of Bill Gates. That's true of Anthony Fauci and all these people up at the top there. They're not looking for what's the best for the public. They're looking for what's the best for me. And I think this book kind of proves that that is their motivation. I, I found the number that I mentioned in my summary on the, it was an AP investigation on royalties by government employees. So there's not, this was two years ago or something, a couple years ago. There's 916 current and former NIH researchers are currently receiving royalty payments for drugs they developed while working for the government on taxpayer money. Like that, that's a big, <laughs> that makes a lot. 
and these are like top people, right? These are the people that develop new drugs. Um, it's it's an amazing setup. Like science doesn't work that way. Science works because almost everybody's wrong. Like that's what you actually need. Like almost everybody's wrong, but a few guys are right. Um, you, you know, the the he quoted the the when they shut down um, uh, Dr. Malone when they totally pulled his papers and all that. And the, the group that had done that, this like worldwide association, it was the second paper they ever retracted. The other one was written by Linus Pauling, who, who also kind of went against the narrative. You know, they've only done it twice, once on COVID and then once by Linus Pauling. Um, you know, you, you think I like to think about science, like you use the example of Albert Einstein. So if, if you know the kind of the backstory of him coming up through college, like he had trouble getting university. Uh, when he got out of university, he started thinking about, you know, what eventually led to the to the uh, beginning, his his first book, uh, Special Theory of Relativity. Um, he started talking about that. He couldn't even get a job teaching freshman physics like like he tried all over Europe. He spoke a couple languages like he couldn't get a job teaching freshman physics. He ended up working in the patent office because his wife was pregnant and he had to support his kid. Like, like, you know, so there's science, like he eventually, you know, eventually got out, but um, that's an example. So some of these other guys, I think you can think of as like Einstein. Uh, we have a, uh, a chat message says, does Kennedy offer any solutions? It was mentioned that he's pro-government. So if it's a government solution, don't progressives see the contradiction? Um, my impression on Kennedy is actually the answer to that is no. His solution, uh, he doesn't really talk much about solution. His book is an exposition. Um, but when he talks, when he kind of goes that way, he talks about like getting rid of Fauci, getting rid of Francis Collins, CDC, um, getting rid of these corrupt top people and making the regulations that surround how the government controls uh, public health and equity he talks about equity, like making the, that stronger. Like, I think that's what, if you asked RFK, I suspect he would say something like that. He only mentioned that kind of thing a little bit in there. Uh, he talks about how the Republicans, um, and Republican presidents have supported big pharma profits over equity in public health. Like, like, so yeah, he's a, he's a Democrat. No, he's not going to fix the problem. He would make it worse, even though he does expose this. I think if he was in charge, like if Robert F. Kennedy was the president, um, I don't think he could do what his uncle did. Um, but if he became president, I think he would make the problem worse. Because the next person that replaced Fauci would just do the same thing. The problem is the power, the money and the power. So to me, uh, it, if I was in charge, if you want to ask me what my solution, um, not that amendments do anything, but like the philosophy behind another amendment, why don't we add one that, that says, you know, Congress shall make no law regarding health. Basically add like one more line to the first amendment, like, and just say, no, the federal government has no involvement in any factor with telling any doctor what to do, no licenses, nothing to do with drug development. Like, I think you have to do that. And then after you do that, then you can start working on your state government and get them out of it. And then after that, you could probably fix this problem. But my opinion is 
that's the only way to solve this. It's not going to get solved by, you know, fixing the CDC and NIH and NIAID. That can't be fixed, my opinion. Yeah, I think you'd have to untangle the uh, the marriage between pharma and government. I don't see how you could do that without just removing the government side of it. Um, I mean, how can you create an independent agency that would oversee this? It'd be another bureaucrat, you know, and the, and the same problem might exist. So I'm not sure. You have to get rid of that entanglement first. Mm -hmm. I think the only way and, is to And I'll bet you dinner that is what they'll actually do. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they try Fauci. Like, I think it should be a Nuremberg trial. Um, I wouldn't I be opposed too. to bringing the gallows back. <laughs> yeah. But um, not that I'm calling for that. Uh, but it, that's the level that we're talking about here is crimes against humanity, Nuremberg 2.0. But all getting rid of Fauci and, you know, and some of the others, the lower minions, Deborah Burks and Francis Collins and, and the guy that was funding the lab and running the company that they steered the money to fund gain of function research in Wuhan through. Um, if you take all those out, there's another layer just sitting there. Um, you know, Fauci rose up to become director of LCI and then NIAID under a guy who came up with this uh, war on microbes. That was his philosophy. He had just come up with that. So, you know, they, they talk about in the book that the Cold War ended. There's supposed to be a peace dividend. And Kennedy even goes into that. Um, and I like what he said about that. He said, well, terrorism worked pretty good. Uh, it's actually terrorism is an idea uh, and ideas are a better enemy because there's nothing you can really, you can't really ever say you're done. You're, you're having a war against an idea. Um, but the problem with that was it didn't take all that long before it was hard to drum up enough fear in Americans. So if you're trying to maintain the government budget and the defense department budget, um, it didn't take long before people realized was the example he used with lightning. This is actually lightning is more dangerous than terrorism for Americans. Like that's a, that's a bigger threat. So yeah, if you want to worry about something, worry about get struck by lightning. Um, if you're scared of your kids being killed by terrorists, like God forbid you drive them to school in a car, like that's way more risky than terrorism. Like that's just dumb if you're worried about terrorism. So anyway, that fear faded. He talks about that. And so then they came up with this, like the war on germs. And that was the guy who, Fauci took over from from NIAID. He started this concept and he was getting older. He retired and he handed the reins to Fauci. So Fauci's like coming up, you know, his his growth as a young guy just out of residency. It was working under this director who was who was trying to save the CDC, NIH, NAID, because basically infectious diseases were killing like five percent of the people that they were killing when the thing was established. Uh, they needed another charter to maintain their budget. He came up with the war on germs and trained Fauci and Fauci stepped right in. And Fauci's been quite successful. I mean, as far as his criteria of success, astounding success. Right? He grew huge organization and tons of money. Congress voted twice to shut down the CDC in, in the 50s and 60s. They thought they didn't need it anymore. They're going to shut it down. It passed. It never got signed into law. And they were doing something about that. So that's that's the environment when Fauci started at NIH. They were fighting for their life and they needed a new thing. 
I think it's very interesting that they chose germs. And I know why, because like while autoimmune diseases, like which are most of which are not communicable, um, you know, like most are genetic, like allergies, you know, asthma, uh, the, that kind of stuff. They, uh, they're so common, maybe because in, now they weren't before very kind of important. Same thing with diabetes and stuff like that is they chose, they chose not to go after that, even though that is literally what the NAID, uh, I can't spell that, remember, (laughs) uh, stands for, uh, because they wanted something communicable because there's a fear factor in communicability of a disease versus one that you cannot catch from another human being. And so to me, like if, if it's passed on genetically, that's less terrifying to people, supposedly, than something that they could catch when they go about their day-to-day lives. So it's a lot easier for someone to get money for that, to combat it, than it is to combat the actual problem of all these people being chronically ill uh, from something that was not communicable. Like I have asthma, I have allergies, like you guys saw me, you know, sniffling this morning. And um, yeah, there's not there's not a lot of development going on for solving those issues. Same thing with diabetes. There's not there's not a lot going on, even though there's so much money being given to mm-hmm. that organization, but they're not doing anything about it. <laughs> and which is kind of horrible because we have so many people sick with these illnesses, and they they're going to be sick their entire lives. They're going to give it to their kids, and no one's done anything. They don't care. <laughs> he talked he talked about like the childhood in particular i think i'm remember off the top of my head but it was somewhere around 12 percent of of kids had basically autoimmune style diseases um and i think he put like asthma in there too eczema was another one i guess that's similar cause to that um until 1983 when they started doing childhood vaccines and I saw a graph somewhere. It wasn't in here. Maybe it was on the link. It's like it's an explosion of childhood autoimmune diseases starting in 1983. That's funny. That's worth checking out. Yeah, I and I was born in 87. So <laughs> it tells you something right I don't there. You can see, you can see this. You can see the curves. But anyway, this is pertussis and polio and all these different diseases over 100 years. It's page 288 in the book. Um, these little lines down towards the end, that's when the vaccines were introduced. Like, that's kind of funny. I didn't realize this. Like, yeah, pertussis, like DPT. So there's the introduction of the pertussis vaccine. I think I had that one. I was born in 1960. I, I actually remember that, DPT. Well, um, and he, uh, Kennedy argues that the real reason why they were going down is because we were understanding better how to keep things clean, that it was about maintaining cleanliness instead of treating because if you wash your hands before you eat or when you touch something that is possibly uh infectious or you um you make sure your food is cooked all the way through you clean your kitchen you know you you, the food safety regulations for um you know uh, restaurants and uh food processing plants all that stuff uh, those things increased the likelihood of us preventing those illnesses more than the vaccines did. And and those policies are still incredibly important. Like, you know, if you have a restaurant, you could get shut down if you're not clean. And when, they, when there's an E. coli outbreak among uh, lettuce 
farms, they recall this lettuce or, you know, or really they throw it away. But, you know, you know what I mean? Like they, they, these things still are out there working to prevent illness in people. And that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but the idea that, oh no, it's because of vaccines, like, Mm, that's kind of it's, suspect. <laughs> it's it's well understood by certainly in the Western countries in in America. Like we all know about refrigeration, like it's very important, and people are super careful. They pull some meat out, doesn't look quite right, um, throw it away. Right? We know not to do that now. And yeah, sanitation. We're basically clean, not living in the dirt anymore. And yeah, you believe sanitation, nutrition, refrigeration. Um, it's not drugs. It's not even uh, antibiotics, and 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 it's definitely not vaccines. Vaccines are all kind of new. Vaccinating kids is a new thing. Relatively there was a great speaking, line in that. Oh, sorry. There was a great line in the book about how the world wasn't saved by um, these diseases weren't eradicated by vaccines. The the heroes were the engineers that brought clean water and transportation for food and refrigeration. Yeah, he brings that up in Africa. The disease, like one of the biggest problems, is is water, clean, yeah. you know, access to clean water. Yeah, in America, we definitely don't. We like eat, we get excited because there's like a slight bit of chlorine in our water, so we have to put a filter on it. Like, but no, our water is pretty good. You can go to, you know, almost the worst city in the United States and drink the water, and you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, but Africa, that's not true. It's not true in India. Um, it's not true in some parts of Central America. Um, they're when drinking bacteria-laden water. Go ahead. Alex. When I was in Kansas, we had a huge storm once, and they literally the it made the water unpotable because something like got in there because of flooding. It was insane. The flooding, the, the highways were flooded, and uh, so like no one could drink their water. And they told us all, they're like, no, no one drink the water. You will get sick. And it's like, what kind? Like that's such a great advancement that there's this this system that it's like oh if uh you know like we take it for granted that we have potable water like almost everywhere we go almost all the time what that storm did teach me though is that i should always have water on hand saved <laughs> same thing with yeah, food with <laughs> a little potable i have i live in a small two-bedroom apartment but i have 10 gallons of water in a long-term storage with the the chemical that you seal it uh clean the can really good um, and I live in South Florida, so hur hurricanes are thing a thing here. I live on the coast in South Florida. Um, that's happened to me several times since I've lived here. Where you, yeah, we couldn't drink the water for four days, uh, and it's because the sewage system backing up. But I get like a text alert on my cell phone, like the internet's not working <laughs> at my house, and the power's off, and I get a text message: "Don't drink the water." Like, okay, actually, the text message was "boil the water." Not that hard to. And there was a hurricane coming, so I had like half the pans in the house filled with water anyway. That was before I stored it. But now I have 10 gallons. It's two people living here. Um, this is kind of a doomsday scenario, but and we're getting into prepping a little bit. But but that is like, you know, back to the book, it's a well-known thing. Like we know, like you said, there's systems in place. If you're on city water, you're careful. Uh, if you have a well, I had a well for 25 years, you're kind of immune to a lot of this stuff because pumping water out of the well and we have a filter and a salt on it um that water's pretty good but but the, the main thing is knowledge access and knowledge so there's places where people don't have firewood to boil the water and they feed their little kids water and 
Maybe they get tuberculosis. Um, that's well known. It's not the vaccines. And it's not even the medical treatment, which I always thought it was. But those graphs that they start at 1900 and it's just like, shoop. Like there's no, there's no change in the slope of the line where the vaccines are introduced on all those illnesses. Like, I guess they didn't do anything. Maybe they made it worse. Who knows? Or maybe they do a little bit. Um, the DPT one in particular, they talk about uh, pertussis, pertussis, if I'm saying that right. Yeah. Is that right, Tracy? Yeah, pertussis. Um, whooping cough. Per, whooping cough. Um, they say that that DPT vaccine, it, it does make you, uh, it does prevent tetanus or it reduces tetanus. It reduces pertussis, but it also destroys your immune system and that the, the rate of um, uh, just total mortality in children who get the original DBT is like 300% of the unvaccinated. There's like a bunch of studies done in Africa and India. Um, the DPT vaccine actually kills people, not from pertussis and not from tussis. It does actually work on pertussis and tetanus, but it also destroys the immune system or harms it greatly. And it cause, it kills more people than it saves. Better off with pertussis. Just like you're better off with COVID than the Moderna shot. Not to turn this into a vaccine total discussion, but I started researching vaccines when my kids were little and they wanted my baby to get a um, hepatitis B shot. And I said, well, hepatitis B, you get that from shared drug needles or, or sex. And I said, you know, my toddler really isn't going to be doing any of those things. And um, not for a long time, hopefully, or maybe, you know, for quite a long time. Um, and so they said the reason is because they don't get um, young adults back to get the shot. And I said, well, can you guarantee that this will prevent that when they and they said, no, they're not sure, but they think it would. And so it started me looking into the whole thing of what they were asking me to, you know, to put in these pure little bodies and um, I chose to not vaccinate my kids because of, well, except for some of the early ones, my younger two had, because I hadn't really started looking into this. But anyway, um, I had done a lot of research and they've proven that, um, that things that have cured a lot of illnesses um, were not vaccines, that the parallels were improved nutrition, improved cleanliness standards, and the same with COVID. They've proven that the people that have died from COVID in general have over four, around four on average, comorbidities. And so rather than, you know, the fact that they're promoting people to get fresh air or go outside or reduce their stress by not being so panicked and thinking that everyone could have this or um, you know, they've proven vitamin D is one of the biggest comorbidities, low vitamin D levels. They knew, you know, that wasn't part of their um, agenda to, to promote the health first. It was all about vaccines. And I, I think it's just been the same with the childhood vaccines. I could go on. <laughs> I, I wasn't like very anti-vaccine. Like I, like when, when the HPV vaccine came out, I was like, you know what? This doesn't make sense to me. I'm not going to do it. I, I'm My risks are extremely low. I, it didn't make sense to get it. 
Um, but I did last year, I got in, I got in the middle of a cat fight, which cat fights increase your chances of getting tetanus, like in extremely high, especially cause I did get actually bit because the, the, it's like getting an injection of ill, of, of like <laughs> germs right into your system. So I did get the tetanus shot then because I was, I was worried cause it was, there's a, like a 50, 50 likelihood. And I was like, that's, that's, that's high enough for me to be concerned. But um, until I read this book, I was not like really like, eh, I don't see the big deal, but I wasn't researching it like childhood vaccines all that much because I don't have children. But then after reading this, I was like, okay, I'm kind of seeing where they come from. Uh, some of these vaccines do not seem like they actually are helpful uh, or needed. Uh, and and they actually do seem like they're going to cause more problems. And I'm like, I'm completely, I went through all my childhood vaccines. And now I'm sort of like, is, is, is some of the problems I have, because I am not considered very healthy, um, I'm like one of those people who are who's chronically ill for the entirety of my life. And I'm like, is this because of my vaccinations? Like, I do have that question. I'm not saying yes, but it is a question in my head now more than it ever was before. And that, I feel like that's uh, that's really horrible that uh, so many people just trust this, you know, and they they trust their kids with this. And. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you're going to have kids, you should probably research everything your doctor wants to do to your kid, like everything. Just so I, I applaud you, Tracy, because I do think that it, that's one of the most important things you could do for your kids. Well, and one of the reasons um, that they're trying to get the um, COVID vaccination improved for children and part of the, they would love it to be part of the mandatory barrage of vaccines, childhood vaccines, is because once it's approved for children, it then um, removes it from liability and for adults. And once the COVID vaccine, once the emergency use authorization authorization for COVID vaccines is removed, then that, that liability protection is gone for adults unless they get it approved for children. So even though children have little to no chance of dying from children, and there's been recent articles that said more children have died from COVID vaccines than from COVID, if they get it approved in children, then they won't need the EUA um, authorization anymore um, and they will no longer be, it'll, it won't fall under, it'll be the same as the other, as liability protection for pharmaceuticals. And so, um, you know, right there, that's, that's very suspicious. I'd say it's always suspicious if a government tells you you can't sue a private company for something. Like, I honestly don't think the government should have any right to tell you who you can and cannot sue. Like it, they, that should not be something that they are uh, involved in. Like I, mm -hmm. I should be able to sue anyone like, and for any reason, and they could throw it out when I get there, but they shouldn't be telling me that I can't even bring a lawsuit to the court for any reason yeah. against anyone. That is, that is suspicious uh, as a, as in its crony capitalism right there. I, I, I won't say it's not because it's too, it's, it's too intermeshed between government and private industry 
to say, oh no, we're protecting them from you, from the public. Why? Why are you protecting them from the public? Shouldn't they be beholden to the public? Shouldn't everyone be beholden to the public? This is a real issue here that, and I, th I think it's, it, it goes beyond the medical industry that it, that the government is telling us who we can and cannot sue. It feels like censorship. Absolutely. You know, the government says they take on the liability. Like that's how they do that. So yeah, sue the government. Go for it. See what you get. Yeah. So we've paid for the American taxpayers paid for the research for the COVID vaccines as well as so many of these other vaccines. And who gets the money from this? The pharmaceuticals, even though they say they were limited to $150,000 per vaccine of royalties, um, I'm sure that there there's many other you know avenues per, per year. That's per it, year. Per year, and then when mm -hmm. someone has an adverse event, we pay for it because they sue the government, not the pharmaceutical companies. And the pharmaceutical companies say, well, if they're not protected, then um, they won't have the um, leeway um, or the scientific creativity to make the va new vaccinations and do the, the research. And um, yeah, it just, it is, like you said, it's just too meshed, the pharmaceuticals and the government. And now they've brought in a lot of universities, Johns Hopkins and North um, University of North Carolina, there's some Maryland, University of Maryland. <laughs> um, they brought in a university to add, I guess, kind of a, um, it seem, they seem to be a non-biased partner, but they cannot be because they're getting so much, a large percentage on their funding from pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, you can't trust any of them because where does their funding come from? And even local doctors, you can't trust local doctors. If people talk about they go to their doctor. Um, Carter's talked about you know, when his wife was pregnant going and then the doctor insisting that his wife get the COVID shots. And he's like, well, can you, can you demonstrate that it's safe? You know, this was a little early in the pandemic. They're like, no, you got to find another doctor. Insisted. You know. I got into an online conversation with a pulmonologist here when they first approved the Pfizer, and I was, I was pointing out that the the uh, CDC or NIH changed the definition of vaccine. Uh, they removed the word immune to provide immunity and change it to protection. Um, as you say, well, the vaccines provide protection, and I was pointing out like, why did they do that? Like, well, I guess they don't provide immunity. They know that they couldn't approve the Pfizer. Um, it was in a local page here in my area, and all these people just jumped on me, attacking me. Um, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, this one guy, he like lists his resume. He's a pulmonologist in a local hospital. And I'll say his name. I don't care. Dr. Mark Palmer, Port St. Lucie Hospital. He's a pulmonologist. Um, he says, you internet warriors, all you do, you look at Google, you don't know nothing. And I like replied, well, I'm just quoting. Here's the link. I'm quoting the CDC website uh, and he deletes the, the whole thread deletes. So I think, oh, well, maybe he doesn't want to talk about it in public. He's probably got financial ties, right? He's a pulmonologist. Uh, he says he's working in a COVID ward. Um, I'm asking him, I'm just asking questions about the shots. So I found him on Facebook. I private messaged him. 
he like was even worse private message he like comes back he says you're you're an idiot you don't know anything and i said i'm quoting the cdc and his response is fuck you just fuck you and then he blocks me like well that's a powerful argument from a pulmonologist and a covid word like i don't want to go to that hospital um you know the, these people and and this probably goes all the way up to fauci through the insurance companies through how they're funded through the hospital administration um you can't i don't just can't trust anybody that's not independent. Um, but doesn't it worry you? Uh, that's one of the things that really scares me the most in in all of this. I mean, I get the government and farm. They're just all trying to make money. I mean, I, I think they're diabolical, but I, I get the fact they're they're trying to make money. But when you look at individual doctors, and I mean, what is their what is the creed? First, do no harm. You look at individual doctors who tell a pregnant woman she should have a COVID shot. And when you ask that doctor, when you ask her or him, is are you can you guarantee the safety of this? And they say yes. How can they when they, you know, a lot of them haven't read the studies or whatever. They just somebody else has told them that it's safe. And they, so the mm-hmm. fact that so many individual doctors all over the world have just have just accepted this without they, seeing the scientific knowledge the basis go ahead they accept the system they believe in the system that was created to back them up they believe they believe it like i learned that when on the kepra thing like th- they were being told not just by the pharmaceutical company but by you know the nih that it was that it didn't cause seizures and that literally, like, they they all have always believed in this system. The problem is, is that they haven't researched to see if the system is is corrupt, and they so they believe it, and it and it upsets them when people start questioning it because then they have to start questioning what they've said to their patients and what they've prescribed to their patients, and that terror. I think that terrifies some of them. I think they're actually like. They don't want to go there in their mind because then they they have to accept some responsibility. It's like the the oxycotton problem. Like they were told that it wasn't addictive, no. and that's not true. And they they prescribed it like crazy. So many doctors they believed it, they trusted it, and then they had to go. Holy crap! How many freaking patients have I killed with this drug by giving them an, an addiction to it? A horrible, horrible problem, you know drug like and that terrifies them like they're they are human beings it's kind of a like and a lot of human beings like to live in denial because it prevents them from having any kind of self-accountability which can destroy some people some people are destroyed by self-accountability it it completely disrupts their sense of self and some of them will kill themselves over it so a lot of it is this kind of like emotional uh, survivability. They have, they cannot go there or they, or they will self-destruct. It's, it's, it's kind of gross that there's so many doctors like that, but I'd say because doctors think they're smart, they're more susceptible to this. Um, and they really should not trust the system. They should be suspect. They should go into it being suspect. The problem is, is that some of them who are suspect, who are aware of this and are being trying to clandestinely not prescribe some things that they think are dangerous, uh, they can't just come out and say these things, those ones, because they might lose their medical license. 
And so that that's that's a different kind of trying to survive. That's trying to prevent their livelihood from being taken away. Um, here's a question from I'll Fight You Naked. Hello, I'll Fight You Naked. We know him from other <laughs> shows. Uh, how do we talk to normal people about who this guy is? The propaganda boosting him is insane. Uh, okay, how how would you guys say? What do you what do you do when you're talking to a normie on this topic? I say start with AIDS. AIDS. You're talking yeah. about Fauci. Okay. Yeah, I'd say start with AIDS because it's not it it probably has nothing to do with them. Like, and I, I, it, with COVID, they have an investment, but with AIDS, they probably, most of them won't have an investment. So start with AIDS um, and show all the things that went wrong with what he did there. Uh, and then say, and he's been using these same practices throughout his entire career up to now. And, and I think that's a good in uh, for these people because they won't have, they won't have that emotional connection to it. Yeah, that's a that's a good idea. So you're not unseating some deep seated belief. You, you're not attacking their what may be a religion. You say the normie, they're you know branch Covidians is a name I use it, and and not to say anything negative about the branch Covidians. Um, I don't mean that at all. Uh, just it rhymes. Um, they treat it as a religion, and when you go up against it, it's like you're telling a devout Christian that Jesus was a terrible person. Like that that's if you start talking about Fauci, you have to be very careful what you say to normies, quote unquote normies, because you're going up against the Pope. That's how they that's how they respond often. That's how people respond. That's a good approach is to disconnect from that whole religion because they probably don't have one on AIDS and HIV. Same with childhood vaccines. I, I used to, that would be the same approach. Maybe it was a mother, you could start with the childhood vaccines and start talking about DPT. And mm -hmm. what do you what do you think, Tracy? Or I when I yeah, um when I try and talk to people, I usually say first thing is follow the money and say who has made money in this? It has been pharmaceuticals. Um, government that has gotten the kickbacks, and um, I'd say and and Google, Facebook, um, you know, the big tech, those are the ones that have made money on, off all of this. So follow the money is usually one of my first things. And the other thing is I've started asking people um, just, you know, when I usually don't bring the conversation up because it's kind of like, you know, don't dis discuss politics and religion in polite company. COVID, you have to add to that list now. But um, I ask people, how many people do you know that have died of COVID? And most people say, well, my friend's neighbor's sister-in-law or something like that. But then I say, how many people do you know that have been injured or po possibly injured by the COVID vaccine? And most people have a story about that, a, a personal story about that. And so, I th but I think people are afraid to talk about it. I think, you know, I mean, there was a, there, I don't know if you've seen the post on Facebook that there was a news, I think it was a news um, a TV station or a news reporter that posted something on Facebook asking, you probably know about this, asking, you know, tell us some stories about unvaccinated people that have died of COVID. And what they got was tons of, I don't remember, thousands of responses of people saying vaccine injuries. 
and very few about people that died from COVID. And so, um, and of course that was removed pretty quickly, but I, I just start the conversation there with, um, you know, who do you know? Who do you know that's been affected? And um, and then, you know, a lot of times it's it's moms and I ask them about the kids, you know, like, what do you, why do you think that you might vaccinate your child? What would make you? And they say, well, you know, they're, the doctor told, told me I should give it to my kid. I want to protect them from everything. I mean, there's billboards that are saying, you know, do the right thing as a parent, protect your child, get them the COVID vaccine. And I just, I just, it makes me cringe because children have a, you know, 0% chance of dying from, or very, very slim chance of dying from COVID. And the ones that have, have been kids in hospitals that have some other comorbidity, some extreme comorbidity. So anyway, just maybe I'd say, to help people, to talk to people is just to ask them those kinds of questions. I always say, I mean, I don't have a lot of facts until now from this book, but I would always tell people, um, if you can't question it, then it's not science. And that usually gets people thinking, uh, they still dismiss me, but at least they'll maybe think about it. Um, because you, you can't question the narrative or they'll shut you down. And if mm-hmm. if what they're saying is true, they should be able to back it up. And that's that's the way science has always worked. So I'm, it's that's the part that's most disturbing about this trend is they're dictating what the science is. <laughs> and that's not how science works. Well, that's what you brought up, Tracy, the idea that they're making it a moral question, do the right thing. And that's not science, that's philosophy, that's ideology. And uh, that's kind of important. That should not be involved in medical decisions, philosophy and and morality. That shouldn't have anything to do with whether or not you vaccinate your children or whether or not you get a vaccine. It should be, what are my risk factors? What is the efficacy of the treatment itself? Um, what What are the possible adverse side effects? Who funded the research that went behind this? That's that's one a lot of people don't think about is is a step they should always include. Uh, who's making money? Like you brought up, who's making the money? All those things. Those are things you should be asking yourself every time you're you're told to do a medical treatment. But um, like the they want to take it out of all of the the realm of you know looking at those questions which are real questions to basically pushing it into morality because people are not logical usually when it comes to morality they keep as if you push this you're not a good person unless you do this and most people want to believe they are good people uh, then they think they have to do it they stop making. Uh, they stop thinking about it. They stop asking questions and they just go, oh, well, I, I want to be a good person. So I'm going to do the thing someone told me is the thing that makes me a good person. And and that's why they're pushing the morality level for it now. And, and here's the thing, too, is that like I have comorbidities, like I have asthma, as I've, I've mentioned, I've not gotten the vaccine. I've not done it. And I don't have natural immunity either. I, this whole time for two years, I've not gotten the vaccine and I've not gotten COVID. I've got, I've been lucky, but it's, I don't think it's necessarily luck so much as limiting exposure. Like what we talked about, like 
sanitation and uh, cleanliness and all those things. So it's like that your exposure factor should be one of your questions, you know, like how high is your risk of being exposed in the first place? You work in a hospital, your exposure is probably higher, but if you don't, you're probably, it's, it's going to be much lower. And that, so that's another one of those questions, but they don't want you to ask that kind of question. They don't want you to think about things like that. So they push that morality uh, stance instead. Which is the factor of a, of a religion or cult, if you will, you know, which is you call it a cult instead of a formal religion. Um, but that is how cults work, right? You can't question the leader. You can't question the basic tenets. Uh, there's some authority figure that provides what to think. Uh, and you, you, you can't go against that. If you do, you're out of the cult. So if it becomes a virtue signal thing and like, I'm a member of the cult, I got my mask on, I got my shots, I'm getting my kids the booster. Um, they're, they're signaling their goodness to the world, right? Mm -hmm. And using their kids as a weapon really to help, to help that. Um, yeah, the money, if you go back to AZT and it's like to, to follow the money, uh, it said in the book, like AZT was the most expensive drug in history when that came out um, for, for AIDS. And it was entirely funded by NIH and NIAID. And the, the, the cost in the book, it said it cost $10 to, to manufacture a dose of that. And they were selling it for $10,000 a year. Um, and, and Fauci's behind all that, like the, the amount of money, like where does that money go? He, he gets into the one more comment about RFK. He, he talks about equity and greed and all that. So he's got that whole collectivism thing going on. Um, and he, he says, you know, he's also against intellectual property. Basically he's, he thinks that's one of the solutions is to get rid of intellectual property on drugs. When there's a, he, he talks about when there's a worldwide pandemic, like they needed to just release the formula for the, the drugs to the world so that, other people can make them because it's a global pandemic and equity and racism basically. Um, and I'm certainly against that. Like I, I believe in property rights and I've always heard this argument about drugs. Like why are pharmaceuticals so expensive? Well, it's because they cost so much to develop and they have to put so much money into the trials and everything. And that is true. Although the problem I now know that actually most of the development costs is paid for by taxpayers not the drug companies. Um, so that argument doesn't quite hold water anymore to, for me. Um, AZT is an example. And the whole thing with the trials, that's basically there's no liability and the government dictates how the approval process goes. And as it turns out, FDA, based on that 10-year range that he talks about, FDA only approves new drugs that come through NIAID. And NIH, like those are the only ones that get approved. So if you're not in that system as a drug manufacturer, you're not getting your drug approved and you can't sell it in the US or anywhere in Europe. Um, you can still sell it in Africa, maybe. Uh, that that whole money stream, it, it totally debunks basically this whole argument I've always heard about intellectual property rights and why pharmaceuticals are expensive. Uh, that's all a lie. That the, the funding isn't really there. It's 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 the government. You got to get the government out of the business. Anyway, I'm gonna yes. I'll stop talking. We're almost up to two hours, so I want to go around. Like you know, Alex, do we miss anything from the book here? He does mention Depo, uh, the birth control drug, 
and how mm-hmm. it actually causes long-term fertility problems. Now that that section really interested me because I was on Depo for four years. Now I was, I, I did research it, but I did not see that, but it didn't, it didn't matter to me personally because I, I got sterilized. Um, but I was, I thought that was pretty interesting because it's like, I, I, I know that um, this goes beyond vaccines. This goes beyond a lot of the things that people um, like, like a lot of new pharmaceuticals for, it has to be for a large population. So like Depo is a birth control drug that would hit you. They say, oh, all these women can take it and it'll be safe and it's okay. It's totally fine. You know, and versus something like uh, this extremely narrow disease that doesn't have any treatment uh, possibilities, pharmaceutical companies are not going to look for a treatment for that, you know. And so there's this problem where we have all these untreated diseases that are small groups of people. And then we and but then we have chronic illnesses that they're willing to uh, create new drugs for that treat symptoms, but not cure. Like that's the other thing that keeps happening. And then we have these drugs that are going to hit a large population of people like Depo that they don't really care about the side effects necessarily, like, you know, long-term fertility problems uh, because they're going to make money off of it, especially because like an injection like Depo, that's pretty serious. You can't get that over the counter. You have to go to your doctor every time, you know, and you have to have that prescription. It's, it's It's a more expensive item, which by the way, if you're on health insurance, your health insurance will pay for it 100%, but they're still getting paid. They're just not, you're, you're, it's just not coming from you, the patient necessarily. So it's like, there's this huge, there's a bunch of problems going on right now because of all this that we're not, uh, they're not going to so- solve. They're not going to solve these issues because they're all, they're making money off of them. And same thing, except for those, that small group of demographic uh, illnesses, they're never going to try to solve those problems ever, which is actually where government money would be helpful if they told them we'll pay you to create a drug for this small population of people. But they're never going to do that either because they're made, the, the people in government are making money off of the other drugs, the ones that are actually profitable. <laughs> Tracy's thinking of something I can tell. What? Do you want to talk about that or do you you want to, uh, anything else we missed that you, because there's so much in this 450 pages. Yeah, there is one, one thing that um, I did find interesting uh, is the, um, have you heard about the international criminal court case? We were just talking about, you know, is anything coming from this that um, Kennedy lays out the problems and, and facts, but, what are the solutions? And one of the things is that there is a, um, the International Criminal Court back in early December filed a genocide case against Fauci and Gates and several others have been named. And I haven't followed it since then, but um, I'd be curious to see what, what comes of that, because that's a supposedly an unbiased, untethered to pharmacy or any independent um, individual country um, court. And so, you know, that may, that may bring some solutions or at least at least some accountability, some accountability, or maybe some world more worldwide awareness of, I mean, of these crimes. 
Of anything else, Senator? The only thing that I we hadn't touched on yet was uh, the book made some reference to other countries and how they've handled COVID and other diseases. And I've always wondered why worldwide it's kind of the narrative has been the same. And I think I think maybe the key is uh, that it, that all the money is tied into the Gates Foundation. We were talking about that, but that worldwide he has so much control. Um, so maybe it's just the money, but uh, but there have been countries, as the book pointed out, that have gone against the narrative. Uh, but like Israel, like why are they pushing boosters when they've they know it doesn't work now? They're but they seem to be backing off. But I'm not I'm not 100 sure why why would Israel be like so in on this? You know I don't understand that. But then other countries that seem to have uh, realized pretty early on was Iceland was one of the examples. There were several examples that they started backing off from the uh, the mandates because they realized it wasn't helping. Um, and I'm just kind of rambling now. The other thing before I finish my ramble was uh, one of the points where you showed Keith the graphs. I don't think there was a graph in the book about um, the uh, the COVID shot. Uh, how the the rates of infection actually started declining way before the vaccine shot was available. So like in December, before that was widely available, um, was when they started declining massively. And they're still pointing to, oh, this is why, you know, it has been declining is because of the shot. And it, it was declining way before the shot. So <laughs> um, that just goes to point to that, uh, that charts that you were showing with the vaccines that they're not, they're not necessarily the reason why. Um, there's other factors. Um, yeah, I guess that's all I had. Yeah, they'll, they'll never, they never back up the claims. They make these sweeping claims. And Fauci, that's all he ever does. You listen to him, he makes sweeping claims. That, uh, the, the mainstream journalists don't even question him. They won't even ask him a good question. So he never really has to back it up. Um, RFK, like he, the one thing he talks about, he sued him under the Freedom of Information Act for one of the childhood vaccines, like prove this is safe. Uh, and it took them 10 months and they finally came back and they admitted like, no, they didn't do a randomized placebo trial. They don't actually know if it's safe. And these other studies that showing that, you know, the, the, the comorbidities or the um, all death scenarios are, you know, three times what they are in the vaccinated people. Like, like they, they, they don't back it up. So. I think speaking to your how other countries handled um, COVID vaccinations, there are a couple of countries and areas like some areas in Africa that you talked about, but Sweden in particular, early on, they I think they only locked down for a week. They, you know, had their kids back in school and they didn't, um, they all they encouraged was protecting vulnerable, pop vulnerable populations, like um, particularly seniors. And so I feel like they're sort of the control group for the world because they have a lower vaccination rate. They didn't lock down. Um, they did do some masking, but it was really um, kind of a, as a voluntary and more as a preventative in, in, in um, certain situations. So I do think that your, you know, your point about looking how other countries handled it, it'll, it will show because you know this is probably not going to be the first go round. How many times have they done the that he talk about the simulations that they held, um, saying, okay, here's how we handle 
a pandemic. And what did they do but use the playbook out of those simulations? That's how they handled it here and, and in a lot of countries even more extremely. So I do think you know, your, your point's very valid about other countries and the way they handle it being good lessons for everybody. Well, and on the, the point about why is Israel so uh, gung-ho with the vaccine thing, is that for one thing, they're very closely tied money-wise with the U.S. A lot of um, what they do, it involves us. Um, and then also there is the WEF to consider and how, and how they influence things. They have um, a lot of uh, international corporate um, CEOs involved with world leaders. So if you're seeing a lot of world leaders do something um, that we're doing, it, you might want to check to see how involved they are in the WEF uh, because that could influence their decisions. All right. I think we should end it here. I know I could keep talking about this because there's so much in there. Um, but yeah, I'd encourage everybody to read the book uh, and and occasionally laugh a little at it because otherwise you cry. Um, I think he's right about a lot of this. And and the minimal uh, things I could say um, th that I didn't like, it, it's super minimal. He talks about his uncle and his father a little bit. And I'm like, I don't know if that's quite right, but it's family. Let that stuff go, you know. Um, and uh, just ignore when you start talking about equity. The facts in this book are just incredibly well-researched book. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks for watching, everybody. Please read the book. Uh, tomorrow, there's a coffee break, so uh, 2 o'clock Eastern. It's uh, Carter, and the guest is some bitch I know. Um, so that should be fun. So uh, tune in and thanks for joining everybody. Go Beverly with the credits. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been approved by Neil Young. Please consider canceling the responsible parties. Here's a list. Do you know what's fascist? When truckers refuse to deliver products to the ruling class. That's what the dictionary says. I swear. The continued war on drugs will require the distribution of free crack pipes. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. 
science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.